Well, come with me to Imagination Station once again. And I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you are the subject, you're the servant of a most noble and gracious king. And this is no ordinary king. For once you were a rebel to the king, but in kindness, he not only forgave you your rebellion, but he brought you into his service to eat in his palace at his table. But now from a far, far away place, news has come that the son or daughter of your beloved king is deathly ill. And they're at great risk to die. Their life hangs in a balance. Imagine for a moment that you have the only vial, the only container for a life-saving medicine that your king's child desperately needs. And your king summons you to deliver what must be delivered. And the only way for that person to live, that son or daughter of the king, is for you to make an all-out effort to deliver the vial at any cost. And so at great hardship, over many, many miles with clear and present danger, in the face of much opposition, exhausting days and endless nights, moments of lip-quivering fear, with all of these in front of you, you go. But you don't go alone. The sin, the king, sends what we'd call a retinue, a company with you. But it is your great responsibility. It's your great privilege to deliver the only known vial of medicine to save the life of the son or daughter of the king who so loved you that forgave you your rebellion and brought you into his palace into his table and his presence because of his love for you. And this is the king who's sending you now on mission to save their child. Well, Edmund Clowney in his book, The Church Says, as we've seen over a number of weeks, that the church is called to serve in three ways, God directly in worship, one another in nurture, and the world in mission or by witness. Many of you know this quote by John Piper that worship exists, where missions exist, because worship does not. And so I have a question for you this morning. Are you a Christian? Then you're the church. You're part of the church. You're one little brick in that great edifice that growing temple in the Lord that is the church. The church is us, God's redeemed whom he has drawn to himself. But it doesn't end there. The local church is not intended to serve as a terminal point of spiritual blessing and life. To be honest, if we're that, that equals spiritual constipation, and you don't want it. 
Edmund Clowney says this, God accomplishes his saving mission by sending his son into the world. And he says, it is Jesus who is the great missionary sent by the Father and his Lord. Jesus comes to gather his people and to form his disciples as a company of gathers. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, we the church then are a company of gatherers. We're commissioned to do that. So turn with me now in that first passage that Josh read, the final five verses of Gospels, of the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We find here a great commission. And what I want to do in the matter of just a few minutes is preach a mini-sermon on that. Some of you know this. I've preached it before here in the same series. And I credit Pastor Al Martin from probably 45 years ago who preached this message that I heard. It might have been 1980, 1979. I've preached it actually all over the world in different places to take his outline and give a mini-exposition of it. But we, brothers and sisters, have received a great commission like that subject, like that servant sent by the king with the only life-saving vial of medicine. We have the goods. What's Arby say? We've got the meats. We've got the gospel. Okay? We've got it. And woe unto us if we keep it to ourselves. We find in the Great Commission, again, this is from Pastor Al Martin, and I want to give proper attribution. We find here an enthroned and exalted king. It is the Lord Jesus who no doubt validates his deity here when he accepts the worship of the disciples, right? But his first words here are all authority in heaven and on earth. He says, it's been given to me. Not some, but all. There we have an enthroned and exalted Christ. That's who is giving this great commission to the disciples. But we find then in this passage three objectives, three goals of our evangelism. And honestly, evangelism and discipleship, as we think of the Great Commission, ought not to be separated. They're two parts, they're two sides of one coin. So here are the three goals in the Great Commission given by the enthroned and exalted author and finisher of our faith, the King and Lord of the Church, Jesus. Number one is to bring disciples into faithful into trustful, we'd say, subjection to the Son of God. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Not some of the nations, all the nations. Not just your neighborhood, but all the neighborhood. And you'll notice that the focus here is making disciples. It's really one imperative. Make disciples with three participle words, words that end in I-N-G that give force and shape to the one activity. Going, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Number one, bring men. 
And by that I mean men and women and children. All creation, as Mark says in Mark 16, preach the gospel to the whole creation. Bring them into trustful subjection, that is saving faith to the Son of God. Make disciples of all the nations. Number two, bring them into vital union with the church of God. So he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And see the second, baptizing them in the name, that's in the singular, of the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by that, baptizing them in the name, that is bring them under the authority and in vital connection to the people of God. Bring them in faith to the Son of God. Link them arm to arm with the church of God. No man is an island. We're not saved to individuality. We're saved into community. But thirdly, not only are we to bring men into trustful subjection to the Son of God, not only are we to bring them uh, in vital union to the church of God, thirdly, again from Pastor Al Martin, he says, we are to bring them into practical conformity to the Word of God. You see that in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, which stands as a single statement for the whole counsel of God. But is it the point that the disciples received this, this, there was no completed canon of the Old and New Testaments? What stands here is this expression, teaching them to observe, that is keep, obey all that I have commanded you. To be saved by Jesus as our Savior, to receive the benefits of him as Savior, but not come under the authority of his lordship is a Christianity the Bible knows nothing about. And then finally, in this expression, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We have an ever-present and ever-living Christ. And so in the Great Commission, what do we have? We have an enthroned and exalted Christ. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We have three goals of evangelism and thus of discipleship. Bring men into trustful subjection to the Son of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We have secondly this command to bring these disciples that have come to faith into vital union with the church of God. The church that Jesus has said he will build. He'll build in such a way with such force that even the gates of hell will not be able to withstand its pressure, its impulse, its energy. And then thirdly, he says, not only bring these disciples into trustful subjection to the Son of God by faith, not only bring them into vital union with the church of God, but he says, you bring them, you teach them by coming alongside of them with faithful word ministry, you bring them in practical conformity to the word of God. And he caps this off with this promise of an ever-present and ever-living Christ. He says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We have a great commission. We have our marching orders. Now turn with me to Acts 13. 
And kids, if just for a minute, I want to give you the big idea so mom and dad can quiz you about this at lunch. I meant to do this earlier. So it happens when you get older, you forget things. All right. Here it is. Kids, the church serves. The church serves the world. And you build on this. Like, you can play with this, moms and dads, with your kids. The church serves the world for God by our witness. And therefore, we live missionally. You might notice that you might not find the word missions in your Bible. You find the activity of missions, but not necessarily the word explicitly. It'd be like Trinity. Okay. But if you're with me now, turn to Acts 13. I want us to see from this just five basic things to observe out of the text. And we'll be more broad than this, but I wanted Josh to read for simplicity just these three verses. So we've seen, of course, the background here is this great commission that Jesus gives the disciples in the end of Matthew. Both Mark and Luke have their own form of great commissions, final marching orders. Even in Acts 1, we have the very same as a prologue to Pentecost in the inaugural outpouring of the Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, there as Peter is preaching, okay? But now we come here, and many of you know that Acts 13.1 begins what we have traditionally called the beginning of the narrative of the what? The first missionary journey. Maybe you have that in some of your Bibles. But it's important to recognize that in the book of Acts, in the early church, there was missionary activity and I may use missionary missional as synonyms, there was missionary activity before there was what we call or have noted a first missionary journey. And we find five things here, and I want to leave this with you. Next week, next Sunday night, I'm going to preach very specifically then on some of the nuts and bolts, how we as Grace Baptist Church can do missions, how we can be a missional sending church. All right. Now, if you were here Wednesday night, you might have noticed, and we made mention that we've added a couple of things in terms of missionary investment under our missions, which is about 16% of our budget. We not only increased money for international theological students, we added Jonathan's house, and we're looking at supporting what's called the Guatemala Interior Mission. And you'll hear more about these on Wednesday night. I encourage you to come. But as we think about the church serving the world through mission, just five things from this text. Number one, I want us to see a gathered church. So if you're making notes, we find a gathered church. Number two, we find an active spirit. 
a living and active spirit. Number three, we see a proven partnership. Number four, we see a public commissioning. And number five, a noble work. A noble work. I'll repeat these as we go. So first, what we find in Acts 13, there in Antioch, is a gathered church. And by gathered, I mean it's ordered. It's orderly. There's clearly leadership. There's even diversity in that leadership. You'll notice that there is the mention of five men of whom Barnabas and Saul comprise two. And you'll notice that there is Niger, who no doubt was from North Africa. Interestingly, there is Menaean, who's called a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, but apparently was converted. And so we find, though, here in these three verses, clearly not just a patchwork collection of believers, but an actual constituted gathered church in Antioch. This is several hundred miles north, straight north of Jerusalem at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And you see that in, they're gathered there for corporate worship and missional enterprise. Again, before there was this first missionary journey, there was missional enterprise and activity. So there you see it. They, now there were in the church of Antioch. This is the Antioch of Acts 11 and verse 12. Turn with me to chapter 11. I don't mean chapter. I don't mean that. Forgive me. I just realized. Let me get us straight here just for a second. You will turn to chapter 11. You'll notice in verse 19, it's important to understand, right, that the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the focus, the geographical focus is the city of Jerusalem and the birth of the early church, the inaugural outpouring of the church at Pentecost. And then upon the martyrdom of Stephen, there's a great persecution arises. Even at the end of Acts 7, we see there's this man Saul, which is told very subtly by Luke. He's standing there. He's guarding the garments of those who are murdering Stephen. In that point, what happens, there's persecution, and it propels the believers away from Jerusalem and spreads them out, a, a virtual fleeing diaspora or diaspora, however you want to say it. And so we come to verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that is Acts 7, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so when you read Cyprus, you should think across not just land, but across sea to the west, across a section of the Mediterranean Ocean. And then who on coming to Antioch, what did they do? They spoke to the Hellenists also, that is, right? Greek-speaking non-Jews preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay. Okay. 
There is the forming of the church, Acts 11. And it is to this church, we'll talk more about Barnabas later, but it is to this church that we find ourselves reading about there in Acts 13. They've come back. Barnabas and Paul have returned. More on that in a minute. And there's a gathered church. They come back. There's five of them. They're worshiping the Lord. They're fasting. Okay. And presumably, part of the purpose of that is that God might give them direction for what they were to do as a church. Now, I want to note, if you'll turn back to Acts chapter 4, to see the first mention, you think about, who is this Barnabas? It is this Barnabas who was first known as Joseph, was given the name Barnabas, that is, son of encouragement. There he is with the church in Jerusalem, but he is a Levite by birth. He is a native of Cyprus. He sailed, somehow he's gotten from Cyprus to that landmass. And in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, apparently in chapter 4, verse 37, he sold the field, and we must assume he brought all the proceeds of that field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And we leave Barnabas there, and not till Paul or Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, and then turn to Acts 9 at verse 27, Barnabas, Saul is brought to Jerusalem, but he's being stiff-armed by the fearful disciples, and lo and behold, this advocate, this former Joseph, a Levi by birth, a, a Cyprian, a native Cyprian from the island of Cyprus, this one whom the apostles named Barnabas, son of encouragement, he comes along and he takes Saul and he bring, brings to bring Saul to the apostles, and I believe when it says, and declare to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at D- Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, I believe it's, it's difficult to see who is representing who, but I believe it is Barnabas that's alongside Saul, and he's advocating and telling the story of Saul to those in Jerusalem and to the disciples that they would not be afraid of him. And from there, the next thing you find is chapter 11 and verse 22 is now there's this budding response to the word of God. The report of this comes south from Antioch to Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem hears this report, and who do they send? They send this trusted, proven man, the one who sold the field and brought the proceeds to the feet of the apostles, the one who stood by and advocated for Paul, for Saul at that point, and they send Barnabas to Antioch. And he goes there. And true as a son of encouragement, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Acts 11, verse 23. And it describes him. It sounds very much like the requirement for those 
probably first deacons in Acts 6. It says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And somewhere as a result of those fleeing from persecution, their preaching and Barnabas' ministry, we read this, and a great many people, the end of verse 24, were added to the Lord. And so look though, Barnabas, recognizing he needed to leverage his ministry and recognizing who he had in Saul, it says he went to Tarsus, he went further north to look for Saul when he found him, He went back south to Antioch, and for a whole year, it says, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then you find here, right, that verse 27, at this point, the prophets came from Jerusalem. They go north, it says they come down, that is higher in elevation, from Jerusalem to Antioch. They tell of this coming famine, And so the disciples there, hearing this, give to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, just like we did as a church a year ago, 10 months ago, for the brothers and sisters in northwestern Kenya. They collected proceeds, and they sent it by the hands of Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, to the church in Jerusalem, all right? And so then you come to chapter 12, verse 25. There's Barnabas and Saul coming from Jerusalem and then returning north again. It says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And they come to this gathered church. Second. I want us to see an active spirit. Look in Acts 13 and verse 2. We don't know how, how loud, if this was the full extent of the message, but it was summarized by Luke that the Spirit said, the Spirit spoke to those gathered group of five, those prophets and teachers at Antioch to say, set apart For me, these two men, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Some of you know the book of Acts, and even in the ESV, if you look there on page, let's look at it, page 909 in the ESV Bible, it says the Acts of the Apostles. But there's many who think that this could be renamed the Acts of the of the Holy Spirit, because it's here in the book of Acts that we have this inaugural outpouring of the Spirit in the work in the early church as we find the history of the early church here. But there's not only a gathered church, there's this active Spirit. It's the Spirit, even in the face of an incomplete canon of Scripture, who gives us direct word to the leaders of the church at Antioch. And it's instructive for us, and we'll get into this more next Sunday night, about our dependence upon the Spirit in this work of living out the Great Commission, of being a Great Commission church. It's not simply like we make our plans like those in the book of James, where we'll go to such and such a city and we'll make a profit. 
that spirit of if the Lord wills will do this is done in this dependence on the spirit knowing that we may preach the word but only God by his spirit makes dead men and women alive and gives them new hearts. I want to see in verse 2 when you notice at this point in the church at Antioch it may may have only taken 10 seconds for the word of the Spirit to come to these gathered five. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. But they were a proven partnership. I don't know if you've really, if you think about this, there is, as you weave together those first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, it is Barnabas, no doubt, probably coming to faith in Jerusalem in the heady days of Pentecost in the early church. It's Saul then who's there watching the garments as Stephen is martyred. And then he's converted dramatically, suddenly, on the road to Damascus. And at some point here, the word begins to come to the city of Antioch. And, but before it comes to Antioch, it's actually, it's, as Paul or Saul comes to the city of Jerusalem, it's brother Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who advocates for Saul. And then some time later, as Barnabas is sent to Antioch in Acts 11, there with the great prophet that's going on in the work, he realizes I know Saul, I'm going to go get him. And he looks for him in Tarsus and brings him back. And from Antioch to the north, this word comes about a famine in all the world and, so, and the need for the brothers living in Judea in the area of Jerusalem to receive report. And so those two brothers go. If you think about this, there's Tarsus in the north where, where Barnabas has retrieved, if you will, Saul, Antioch, where they're ministering. They're hearing this word. They bring the money down to Jerusalem. They complete their service, and then they travel back to Antioch. They're at the end of chapter 12. These are many, many miles. This isn't like an hour and a half flight from Greenville, okay, to Detroit, Michigan or something. These are hours and days and weeks and months and many, many hard miles where these men, when you see Barnabas and Saul, that's only three words, but these men were part of a proven partnership. A a really practical application, we'll look at this in a week next Sunday night, but it's to be praying that God would build up within our church those who can be faithful team members to be sent that from this body and from the children, we have some 80 children, 18 and under, that God would be raising some of you. You know, when you go, what do you have on Wednesday nights? Kids, what do you have, typically? What do you have? Shine. What does shine mean? Seeing him in nations everywhere. Yeah. And for some of you adults who may not be aware of this, maybe your children, you're an empty nester, It'd be pretty cool if you either to volunteer to serve and help our children see him in nations everywhere or just go and observe. Go and observe and see how we're trying to plant seeds of God's plan 
for how the church serves the world via mission in the hearts of the children of this church. But I want to ask you a question. Are you cultivating, as an application, are you cultivating the spirit and the habit of being a co-worker, a fellow worker? Look with me for a moment. Turn to Philippians 4. A lot of times we've made fun. It's easy to make fun of Euodia and Syntyche or point out to them that, you know what? These women are feuding. They're in conflict and it's unresolved. And so Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, has got to, um, he's got to take some text, some freight here and, uh, and, and treat them. Maybe Lydia, maybe the slave girl, maybe the Philippian jailer had done all they could to try to get these women to resolve their differences. But he says, I urge, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. And he says, yes, so look look what he says of them. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They labored with Paul in the gospel. They labored. They were fellow workers along with Clement. That is Yodi and Syntyche. That's why he entreats them. He loves them. They were called fellow workers. And look how precious this is. He's urging them to get along while affirming that he believes their names are in the book of life. Are you cultivating a ministry mindset to work with others such that if we were trying to pair teams to send off to the 1040 window or to Central America or South America or maybe yeah, someplace there, Portugal, Spain, you know, Western Europe or maybe Far Eastern Europe, one of the Stan countries, would you Would others think of you as someone who knows how to work in partnership? Or have you cultivated kind of a lone ranger persona? What you see here is men who by God's grace had cultivated a proven partnership. See also, fourthly, the public commissioning that was given. They didn't just leave on their own, right? It wasn't like uh, they ended up in Cyprus And then they went on Instagram and sent a note or on WhatsApp, and they sent a note to the elders. Hey, elders of the church at Antioch, just a quick note to kind of catch you up where we are. Here's our GPS location. We made the move, just so you'll know. Uh, This is Saul writing. Barnabas and I, we kind of went west, got a good deal on passage, and we're uh, we're now in Cyprus kind of enjoying beach life and preaching the gospel at the same time. No, there was this public commissioning. It says there in verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Perhaps what's instructive for us, if we would pray, God, make us a church that serves 
the world by our witness of the gospel of Jesus and help us to send our best, our brightest, our most gifted to the hardest places, the most needy places. Are we willing to pray about this? Are we willing to come together and fast about this? I want to encourage you when we pray together on Wednesday nights to be part of that, to come together, to be praying, to be even doing this informally with one another, but then corporately. You'll notice it's after this, after coming together as a gathered church with leadership, praying, seeking the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Spirit speaks and says, set apart these men for the work that then there's this public commissioning. They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Of course, we know from Paul's instruction to Timothy that one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to lay hands on workers or men gospel workers too quickly. But nonetheless, it's a sign of health that we are periodically, regularly prepping and preparing some of you to go to the nations. There's a final point. Not only have we seen a gathered church, an active spirit, a proven partnership, a public rather than private commissioning, we see this noble work. And fundamentally, I want you to notice in this expression It's for the work to which I have called them. It's God's calling on their lives. Yeah. Normally this calling here is a matter, it's God, it's heavy in its Godward dimension. Typically in the New Testament, I think it's helpful for us to understand that calling is the idea of our calling to faith. Right? Many are called, but few are chosen. There's not just the free offer of the gospel, but those that God causes and calls to salvation by drawing them, wooing them, convicting them by the Spirit through the Word and bringing to faith with the Spirit regenerating their heart, God taking them from being dead to life. But here this call is God's call to them in the context of the church. Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. What is that noble work? That work that's referenced there near the end of verse 2. They get to it in verse 4. And again, before there's a missionary journey, there's missionary activity. It's very simple. Look what they did. When they arrived at Salamis, and it's pretty amazing. I love how there's no in-between It doesn't say they checked in at their Airbnb and they checked out all the cool axe-throwing coffee digs and ice cream places in the downtown and figured out where the best running trails were. What does it say? After they arrived at Salamis, what did they do? They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Obviously, there's a lot in between their arrival at Salamis and they're proclaiming the word of God. But it's summarized by Luke for us. There's that noble work. 
they proclaimed the word of God. We read of those who sought to hear the word of God, right? Verse, the end of verse 7, okay? You read in verse 12 about the proconsul. It says, he saw what had, gird, what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And if you keep reading, look at this. Look at verse, as they go to Antioch and Pisidia, to the north, it reads this, right? Came to Antioch. They went again, just like they had done in chapter 13, verse 5. Here again, verse 14. They fish where the fish are. They go bring the gospel here where they reasonably believe they'll have a hearing in this case. And it says, they went on the Sabbath day, verse 14, Acts 13, 14. They went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, look how they do this. This is very mannerly, very respectful. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul basically says, you don't need to ask me twice. He stands up and he gives it, all right? Just like Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. We've seen a great commission. We've observed in Acts 13, the gathered church at Antioch. We've seen the Spirit at work. And make no mistake now, the Spirit that inspired this word that's given us the completed canon, compilation of 66 books into one Bible, now takes that word and normally illumines that word which he inspired to give us instruction. What we need is a church we have here for our work. But we see also a proven partnership. When you read those words set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, you want to understand that from the moment that Barnabas is renamed and introduced to us in Acts 4 to where he advocates for Saul in, in Acts, I think the end of Acts 9, and their work together in Antioch and Barnabas' pursuit of him up to Tarsus, their work again in Antioch, and they're bringing the money to the church down in Jerusalem for famine relief. It's a proven partnership. And then there's a public commissioning. We see that. This isn't private. Missions is the work of the church. If we're not faithfully, sacrificially, creatively, urgently, thinking how we will make disciples of all the nations, which means, Mark 16, we must go and preach the gospel to all creation then we're derelict. We've lost our way. So I want us to see then, it's the church to do it. It's the church to fast and pray and lay hands on those and send them off. Not simply send them off, but to prepare them, send them, and support them. Hold the rope or be on the end of the rope. 
give, all those things. We'll get more practical next Sunday night. Finally, we see, again, in in review, this noble work. What is the work of missions? It's to have the spirit of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's to say, here it is. Here's my ambition. And woe to me if I don't do it. Send men and women into the den of the devil and into the darkest places of the world and preach Christ and him crucified. To know that we are that rebel son or daughter that the king forgave. He brought us into his service and into his palace. He brought us to eat at his table and not on the far end, but right next to him. And he said, I receive you. I forgive you. I make you one of my own. And now, it's we. We have the word. We have the gospel that gives life. God help us. As Dwight L. Moody said to the work, let's go. Let's do it. Let's serve the world with mission.